Morning, church. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, please. We're going to be looking at that text in just a few moments. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark, and I'm one of the ministers here, and we are very grateful that you've joined us for worship. This isn't about us, it's about Jesus, and we hope that you'll feel comfortable to participate however you need to today to express your heart to him and be encouraged by those around you. Uh, We are starting this series, as Isaac mentioned a little bit earlier, through the book of Revelation, which is a very controversial and divisive book. It's not divisive for the means God intended it. It's divisive by what the church does with the book of Revelation. It's a fascinating book. It's apocalyptic literature, uh, which is a unique kind of writing. It's, it's not like the letters written to people or churches that we most common study or the history that we get from the days of God's people and uh, people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, folks like that. It's not uh, even our study through the Gospels where it's the clear teaching of Jesus about how to live. This kind of literature is unique. Uh, let me give you a definition of it. Uh, it says it's an unveiling or unfolding of things unknown, which would not be known except for the unveiling. So apocalyptic writing, which is found in Daniel, sections of Ezekiel, and in the book of Revelation. It's a a revelation of God, a revealing of what is taking place all around us. And it's a unique passage. There are a lot of interesting imagery in the, the revelation given to John on the Isle of Patmos. John being one of Jesus' disciples, and he was a political prisoner because he preached Jesus as Lord of all. And he was taken to this island, he was held uh, as a prisoner, and on that island he received this revelation from God, and God asked him to pass this on to people like you and me. And this kind of literature is unique because John had imagery and visions of seven bowls being poured out, each bowl bringing a new punishment onto earth. He had seven letters that were broken, the seal was broken, and something happened because of it. There's a giant dragon, there's a great city of Babylon, and in all of that imagery, the church has fought for centuries as to what each piece means and how we live through that. And so let me tell you what we're going to do. We're not going to talk about any of that. And it's not to be coy or tricky. It's because what we need to study is what the book of Revelation is to mean in our everyday walk of faith. Now, we will mention some of those things, but only to explain what is clearly meant for us and how we're to live that. This last summer, uh, as part of my study month, I was given the opportunity by the elders to go to what we call the North American Christian Convention, which is a large gathering of the independent Christian churches in the United States. And I was able to go to that, and the whole theme of that week was Revelation. And so it was very interesting to go, and I met a couple of college buddies of mine, and we all roomed together, and we were hanging out and, and studying together. And, and one of my buddies, Ron, who preaches in uh, uh, Lincoln, Illinois, He said, hey, are you going to the Bible study? And I said, when is it? He said, 8 a.m. And I thought to myself, I'm at a conference. I had to pay for it. I'm not getting up at 8. And uh, he said, I said, well, what's it about? He said, Mark Scott is teaching it. And I said, I'll be there. Because my respect for that man and his ability to teach me, uh, he's one of my favorite teachers of all time. And so because of that, in my respect for him, I decided I would go, and he decided that he would take this theme of Revelation, and he introduced us to this concept of what can we take from it away from all the imagery. And the first hour of the first day of that Bible study, I looked at my buddy Ron, and I said, this will preach. And he goes, I know, you want to do a series? And this is what's happening. We're joining churches in Kansas, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Missouri. 
And we all decided that together, let's study this and share it with our people because it moved us so much. The way Dr. Scott presented this to us, it was just really deep and rich. He decided to show us the imperative verbs from the book of Revelation. Now, I know if you're not an English minor or you hated English, you're going, ick. But let me explain what imperative verbs are so you understand where we're going. Imperative uh, verbs are bossy words. Okay, just really simply. They're commands and demands. They're the way we tell people to do something. And so what Dr. Scott did was he took the key words from the revelation given to John that John told us to do, and from that we're going to study what the revelation of Jesus means. Now, imperative verbs are bossy words. They give orders, but they also make offers like have a drink. It sounds like a command, but it's really an offer. There's invitations like come in. There's instructions like take two twice a day. There's suggestions like sit down and relax. All of those are bossy. Now, you may say, I don't really, I'm not sure I know what an imperative verb is. I'll tell you this. If you're a parent and your child gives you an imperative verb, you correct them. If your child says to you, dad, stop it. Don't tell me what to do. It's an imperative verb. Everybody with me? Shake your head. If you're a kid and you've been grounded for the cause, you understand what it is too. You told your parents an imperative. You will do this and like it. And they said, really? <laughs> so if we take the revelation that was given to John and we find the commands that we are to do, revelation will come to life. But I want to give you the best summation I've heard in my entire lifetime on the book of Revelation. Oh, and by the way, if you say revelations, we're going to pick on you. It's one revelation over and over and over again. And here's the revelation. This comes from Dr. Randy Harris, who teaches theology at Abilene Christian University. He was one of the speakers this summer. He had the funniest truncation of the book of Revelation I ever heard. Here's what he said. Three things to remember. You might want to write this down, okay? Three things. Number one, God's side wins. It's the most important thing to remember from Revelation. Number two, you get to pick a side. Number three, don't be stupid. Right, let's rehearse these. God's side wins, you get to pick the team you're on, and you're not uninformed. That's revelation. Now you say, well, then why study it? Because to be able to live in the victory, or I love what Dr. Scott called it, the grammar of victory. To live in the victory of God's side wins, then you and I, there are things we can do. There's ways we participate, and there's ways we hold on. Now there are 29 imperative bossy verbs in Revelation. Some of them are negative, like do not be afraid, do not weep, do not worship the, the city of Babylon. And then there are positives. These are things we can do. We're going to focus on eight of the most common, powerful, imperative verbs in Revelation this week, or these few weeks. And today we're going to look at one. But what I, the reason we're doing this is not to stay away from all the controversy, but to focus on the most important parts of the revelation. It was a revelation for every one of us to understand. God wins, we get to pick a team, and don't be uninformed. Because some of us know God wins, know we get to pick a team, and we're choosing the losing side. And that's why John was given the revelation for us to live through. And if we do this, then all the end time speculation that we've not been made available to. Remember, Jesus said, the Father has not told us the time or day. So to spend eight weeks trying to figure out when it's going to happen is counterproductive since God's not going to let us be right. But we can live right 
if we understand what the bossy commands of the letter of revelation that John gave us contains. So let's begin with the first one. The first command is keep the word of God. Keep. It's found in chapter 1, verse 3. Now, some of your translations have a different word for this, and it's unfortunate because it's not an accurate translation. Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Let's pause here just a moment in the middle of that verse. Prophecy. If you would have asked me eight weeks ago to define prophecy, I would have come up with a real quick transaction, and I would have said, uh, it's a prediction. And I think if I asked most of you, do you think prophecy is a prediction? you would probably shake your head yes because that's how we use the word in the English language. However, I was instructed by someone far smarter than me that only 12% of the times that the word prophecy is used in the Bible is it a prediction. Most of the time, it is a revealing or what you might call a revelation. And what really brought it to mind was a friend of mine, Bryce Hotchkiss, who uh, preaches over in Pittsburgh, Kansas. He said to me, he said, how do you obey a prediction? If we are told to obey the words of the revealing, if it's a prediction, how do you obey a prediction? You can't, which means the definition of this word prophecy actually means revelation. And we are to keep these words. It reveals who God is and what God is doing. Remember, the apocalyptic writing is to unveil to us things that we would not know if they hadn't been unveiled. And what God did to John on that island was he opened his eyes and mind to what God was doing throughout all of history and will continue to do. And he said, tell the churches this. Tell my people that I'm alive and well. I win. And if I win, you can win. But you have to choose this day who you'll follow. You see, when we look at it, there's a couple, there's two realities about Revelation I want to bring forth. And I'm not trying to do this to punk people's positions on Revelation. But these are very important lenses for us to wear to be able to to listen to what John was told. The first is this. Revelation is not a chronological roadmap for the future. If you try to calendarize Revelation, you're going to be as messed up as most people are when they try to figure out this is going to happen next and then this is not the intent of this revelation at all. Remember, the revelation was to reveal God wins. Even when it looks like the enemy's winning, God's going to win most. And the second revelation or the second truth is Revelation was not primarily written for a future generation. If your and my interpretation of John's revelation only makes sense to people living in 2014, we are misapplying Scripture. It made sense to his original audience. And some of the imagery that was used was to make sense to his original audience. How do I know that? Look at Revelation 1.4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia... Who was his audience? It wasn't you and me. It had to make sense to those seven churches in Asia Minor. And when we understand what they could understand and what they would have understood, then we can apply our interpretation to it, but not before that. Good exegesis requires that you know who the audience is, who the author is, and then you can understand the intent. John was a pastor. He started churches, and he was writing these to churches in towns like Thessalonica, Laodicea, Pergamum, Sardis. And if you don't know what the book of Revelation is, you're probably better off than those of us who think we do. Because in chapters 2 and 3 of John's Revelation, he sends these encouragements from Jesus to the seven churches of Asia. And he introduces the issues facing the church universal by identifying them in the local congregations. 
And so his encouragement are to those seven churches. Let's continue verse three of chapter one. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Some of your translations say, and those who take to heart. That's a terrible translation of the concept. It doesn't mean just have a sentimental reaction to it or, or just remember it fondly. It doesn't mean take to heart. It means keep it. And in fact, the original word in the Greek means to stand guard. It means to defend it, to protect it. We used to play this all the time when I was in Bible college. We would take these road trips to Kentucky or Cincinnati or Lincoln, Illinois, and we'd have a lot of time in the vans with a bunch of stinky guys, and so we'd get bored. Music would run out, and, or we'd get in between radio stations, and someone would always ask a question. It, sounded, it would go something like this. If your apartment was burning down and your family and pets were all out, if your home was burning down and the people and the animals that you most love were out of your house, what would be the one thing you would run back in and get? However you answer that question, you've just identified what you guard and keep. You've just identified what is so important to you that you would risk your life to have it, to hold on to it, and to keep it. With that thought in mind, that's what it means when it says, blessed are those who hear and who keep, who guard, who value and hold on to what is written, for the time is near. Remember, John said to his audience, it is happening around us. Not, it's not going to happen 2,000 years from now. It's happening right now around us. That God is unveiling all that's going on in the spiritual realm, and he wants you to understand that he will bring victory through Jesus Christ. Jesus is still enough. And that's the hope and the promise. The word keep, used this way, is found 70 times in your New Testament and 11 times in the Revelation. 11 times we're told, guard this, keep it. Hold on to it. Protect it. And Christians are commanded to guard the ways and words of the Lord. In Romans, in in a letter Paul wrote to a church in Rome, which would have been the epicenter of all that John was envisioning going on in the world, Rome was the power. Some would even say it was the great Babylon. In the midst of this, John says, the obedience, or excuse me, Paul says in Romans 1.5, the obedience that comes from faith. It's not an obedience to simply, now listen to me, it's not just simply to do what the Bible says. It's to keep and treasure the words of God. So Paul says it's an obedience to treasure the words of God because of your faith that they matter. And we live in a world today, clearly, that is telling us that if you and I believe a book written 3,500 years ago, we're idiots. That the Bible's old hat, it's old-fashioned, it doesn't apply today, it it makes people unhappy, it restricts people's freedom, and I'm here to tell you that there's an obedience that comes from faith. Faith in what? Faith in a black, leather-bound book? No, faith in the author of that book and what he meant and what he said. John says, hold on to it. Guard it. Don't let them take it away from you. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, by obeying the truth, we purify our souls. The word of God not only guards, or we not only guard the word of God, it guards us. And when we avail ourselves to it and we protect it, that word sanctifies and gives us clarity in a world that's becoming more cloudy every day. And he says, blessed is the one who not only sees it, but hears it and keeps it. It's an interactive relationship with the words of God. And when you read chapters 2 and 3, he talks to these churches, Laodicea, Thyatira, Sardis, Pergamum. 
He, he talks to churches at Ephesus, and he says, hold on to these things. And the churches that are keeping the word of God, he commends them. And the ones that are not, he rebukes them, and he challenges them. And he says, you have got to go back to your first love. You've got you to gotta hold on to the things of God more. You have to treasure them and guard them and hold on to them because it's not going to get easier. If you jump ahead into Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 in your Bibles, there's an image that John sees Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. We'll pause that and leave that on the screen. Because what I want you to see is, if if that harkens back to Christmas time, when Jesus was born and Herod was trying to kill all the boys two years and under, then Joseph was told in a vision to take his wife and his son and go to Egypt and to wait in Egypt. Very similar to how Moses was taken and the people were taken into Egypt for a season and then they were delivered out of there, that Jesus was taken there. Why? Because the dragon was after the child. The serpent was trying to stop the Messiah from occurring. And it continues. Now, who are those that they are waging war against? Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I'm really worried, not about this church, but I am worried for some of us that we think the word of God is something that if we get 28 minutes of it on a Sunday morning, we're prepared Now, it's got to be the most valuable thing. It's got to be the thing you run after every day to make sure at the end of every day, if you have nothing else, you come out with the word of God. It's that worth guarding, protecting, and honoring. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful, hold on to it, guard it to the words of life and I will, I will protect you. See, as we keep God's word, God's word keeps us. There's a sanctifying, there is a sterilization from the world and a preparation for something holy that only the word of God can do for us. And once again, I wanna be really clear. I'm not asking you to worship your Bible, but the truth within that text is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is living and breathing. It is the will of God given to us in words. And it will protect us. As we guard the words of God, it will guard us. Peter said it this way. Peter was a part of the persecuted church in the first century. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be studying the letter of 1 Peter all the way through our summer. And I'm really looking forward to it. Because Peter is talking to a group of people who feel like exiles in their own homeland. And he says these words to us. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now listen carefully. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. Faith in what? Faith in the truth of Jesus. In a world that says, no, that's a myth. It's a 3,500-year-old joke. It, it, it subordinates people to something that, in, that takes away their power and their happiness and their joy. And I'm here to tell you, I don't believe that for a second. I believe that in the word of God is life and hope and peace. It's healing. And our world is saying, no, if you believe that, you believe in an old-timey, antique belief system. And I'm here to tell you, it's alive, it's well. God wins. We get to pick a side. Don't be uninformed. The word of God matters. And in Romans chapter 10, to that same big church in Rome, with the house churches 
making a difference and changing the culture. Paul wrote these words. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Don't doubt for a second. It is not by preaching that we are saved. It is by the proclamation of God's truth that we are changed. What I want to do in this series is not only present the bossy commands, but I also want to show you an instance in Scripture of where following those commands made a difference. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 22. So if you're not familiar with your Bibles yet and you're not using an app, go to Psalms, which is normally the middle of your Bible, and take a left. And pretty quick there you'll find 2 Kings. Proceeds the book of Psalms. But it is a powerful story of the kings of Judah and Israel. So the, the instant background, and the reason I want you to be in 2 Kings 22 is because I'd love for you to read that. If you don't know the story I'm about to share with you, I'd love for you to take the opportunity this week to avail yourself to it. It's a story of a young man named Josiah. I need to give you the background of Josiah. He's a king, but it's about his grandfather and his father that it makes most sense to us. His grandfather was a man by the name of Manasseh. If you can think of the worst creepy kings in all the world, Manasseh will be number one on your hit list. He was known in the Bible as the worst king to ever king. All right? It says here in 2 Kings 21, verse 9, Manasseh seduced the people of Judah to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. If you remember, when they went into the promised land, God had given these nations an opportunity to repent and accept who he was, and they refused, so he told the Israelites, take them out. This land is not theirs. Remove them. And they did. And they said Manasseh, when he became the king of Judah, was such a creep that he was worse king than any king that had been removed previous. He had brought idolatry back into the land. He had tried to destroy the tablets of the words of God. He, he allowed children to be sacrificed to foreign gods that did not exist. Their own children were being placed on altars and killed. And all of this was taking place. And then a very good thing happened. Manasseh died. And his son Ammon, at the age of 22, was made king. And Ammon did what he saw his father Manasseh do. He led the people into further idolatry, and he led them into a stage in their life that it was, it was going horribly when his advisors and counselors assassinated him. After just over two years of being king, they killed him because it couldn't get worse than that. And they appointed his son, Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, was appointed king. Josiah was eight years old. I have a nine-year-old at home who can't find his shoes. And one day when he grows up, he's going to be amazing. He's a wonderful little boy, very bright, but he can't find his shoes five feet in front of him. He couldn't be king over anything. And here's an eight-year-old boy named King. And his counselors and his consultants, his advisors protect him and work with him. But the truth is, it's not until 16 that he actually begins to make his imprint. And at 16, he begins to bring reform in. And he realizes the idolatry and all that's going on in the country is a joke and it's not healthy. And so he begins to try to fix things. Then, by the age of 20, he begins to turn his heart toward the Lord. And he realizes that he needs to humble himself before God. And then, at the age of 26, and the reason I gave you the ages is I'm grateful for a God who's patient. From 8 to 16 to 20 to 26. God was patient. Because Josiah's heart was returning to God, God was patient with him. And at the age of 26, when he decided to have the temple rebuilt so they could worship the one true God, in, in the tearing down of the temple to rebuild it, they discovered some scrolls that had not been removed or burned. And the counselors brought the scrolls to Josiah and he read them. And here's what I want you to remember. 
When he read the words of God, he cried. He cried because he realized that all he was trying to do was worthless if he did not know what God wanted him to do. Please remember this moment. If you're not doing what the Lord's asking you to do, you're never going to become what the Lord wants you to become. And he wept because the word had been kept from the people. So he gathered all the people in a sacred holy assembly. And he had all the people stand, which is amazing to me. And for hour after hour they read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the people cried out, we have heard and we will obey. Church, that's what it means to keep and guard the word of God. That if you're the only person in a room of 1,000 people here right now, that you would stand up and say, I will guard and keep the word of God. If everybody else remains seated, I will stand because that is the most valuable, powerful, living truth I'll ever know. Josiah did this. And God's blessing came back on Judah. And as long as Josiah was alive and king, they were blessed. But then Josiah died and the next king did what most kings do. They wanted to do it their way. And it was horrible what happened after Josiah. Because Josiah, revived by truth, rescued his people by obedience. That's what it means to guard, treasure, protect, and keep the words of God. So what does this commandment look like in our lives? We've talked about a biblical example of keeping and guarding, but if we're gonna begin this series and we're gonna talk about the fact that God wins and we get to pick which team we're on and we're not uninformed, And what will we do with this truth? Psalm 119. Buddy of mine, Ron, brought this out in his message recently, and I had never thought of it that way. He said, the the longest psalm, and it's 176 verses. The 119th psalm has 176 verses, and all of it is about the word of God. So if you're looking for a place to start reading the Bible, I challenge you, read the 119th psalm every day this week and find out what it means to fall in love with the word of God. But in the 119th Psalm, about the words of God, it says, Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Same word. Those that guard their hearts with the word of God. 1 John 5, 1, 2, and 3. John, who had the revelation that we read today, also wrote letters to these churches. And he said, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Do you hear the hope there, church? The words of God will not ruin your life. The words of God will not take away all of your fun. The words of God will not take away your freedom to be you. The words of God will free you to be everything you're supposed to be. Everything deep down you want to be. Keep. Stand guard. As we guard the integrity of the word of God, it will guard us. As we place ourselves in the presence of the word of God, it will place us on the path of righteousness. The path where we will not turn left or right. So they said about Josiah when he was first became king. He was a good kid who did not allow himself to go to the left or the right. He stayed on the path that God designed for him. This is not about being perfect. This is about being open to the kingdom. So what does it look like for you and I? I want to ask you one simple question. Are you guarding and being guarded by the word of God in your every decision? When it comes to life choices, 
about where to live and where to work and where to go to school and what to study and and how to behave? Are you letting the word of God guard your path and keep you focused on what's most important? When you come to spiritual battles, when there's temptations that come upon you, are you opening the word of God and reminding yourself that there's power in our faith and obedience? And when you're physically hurting and you're wondering where God is in that moment, are you guarding your heart and being guarded by the words of God to know that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that there's nothing that we undergo, that he is not bigger and greater than at all times. It's what it means to hold on to it. I'd ask you today, when your world comes crashing down and your personal life's on fire and you have to run back for the most valuable thing to hold on to in that moment of crisis, I ask you today, will you make it the words of God? Will you hold on to the one thing that can't be taken from you? Some of us here today, we don't trust the words of God because we don't know the author. Our relationship with Jesus makes this book seem like the Grammys made fun of, a 35-year-old book, blah, blah, blah. I'm here to tell you that there's life in this book. And when the dragon comes to steal the church away from its power, those who hold on and guard and keep the words of God will be found standing when it's all said and done. By the grace of Jesus Christ, God wins. We get to pick a side. Don't be stupid. Hold on. There are tables with lamps on them in this room. And if you don't know who Jesus Christ is, I'd like to introduce you to some words. I'd like to show you what the Bible says. Maybe we don't do it this morning. Maybe we set up an appointment, but we would love to sit down. There are so many of us that don't want to tell you what we think. We want to show you what the words of God says. John says, hold on to the revelation that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Hold on to it with all your heart, all your soul, and it will direct your path. And we believe that's true. If you want to know who Jesus is and what his words are, just a moment as we stand and sing, we're going to ask you to go to the table. And if you don't want to do that in a large room full of people, you have permission to wait till afterwards and grab us. But today, today it's been revealed. The words of God matter for every one of us to guard. Let's stand together.